All right. Well, good morning or good afternoon or I don't know, maybe good evening. Depends when you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Industry 45 podcast show. I'm Shane Christopher Neal, your host from the drum throne 2022. So excited for today's interview. Uh, it is not a drummer though, but it is a guy who plays in a band with a great drummer. We're going to get to that. Uh, before I get to the guest though, just want to remind you, Industry 45 Podcast Show, all brought to you by Trombetta Construction Materials, 1901 Barton Street, East in Hamilton, Highway 20, that is in Fawn Hill, and a brand new location out in the Kitchener area uh, in Breslau. You can check them out, www.trombetta.ca. Uh, so today, my guest is Greg Martin from the band, yeah, you guessed it, uh, the Kentucky Headhunters. They have a brand new album out, That's a Fact. Jack, uh, a great album indeed. And if you're like me, uh, you heard of the Kentucky Headhunters in the late 1980s. Who didn't party to Dumas Walker? Uh, what a great song that was. We're going to talk about the genesis of that song. Uh, we're going to talk about the brand new album. Uh, we're going to talk about Fred Young. I've always been a fan of Fred Young and his drumming and just he's just a rock star when you check him out on stage. So we're going to get to that. And also, by the way, uh, the great Greg Martin has a radio show, and it is on WDNS, which is in Bowling Green, Kentucky, the Lowdown Hoedown. So we're going to chat about that as well. Uh, stick around. This is a ton of fun. What a cool dude. We're going to talk about playing the Grand Old Opry, everything Kentucky Headhunters. Greg Martin right now. Industry 45 podcast show, country89.com, giantfm.com, and shanechristopherneal.com. Hey, this is Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters, and you're listening to my friend, Shane Christopher Neal. He's bold, he's sexy, and he's a drummer. This is the Industry 45 Podcast Show with SCN. All the years of abuse by amplifiers and cymbals and monitors and, you know. <laughs> well, can, can you imagine... Can you imagine if you didn't play in the Kentucky Headhunters and you played in like Metallica, what your ears would be like? <laughs> <laughs> oh my, yeah, yeah, we're not that loud, man. I, we're loud, but not not. We've actually calmed down a little bit over the years. I think we've become a little more dynamic, which I wouldn't tell too many people that, you know, because they think we're a bunch of hooligans, you know. <laughs> I don't call it dynamic. I call it older. You see, <laughs> that's why you're a little quieter. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah. Th things are going. Things are going well for you. It looks like. Yeah, everything's fine. I can't complain. I can't complain a bit. We're, uh, you know, we're, we we crawled out of the wreckage of 2020, and last year wasn't a bad year. Um, this year is looking up, <laughs> which is scary. I, I'm afraid to be too optimistic, but <laughs> well, I think it'll be all right. You know, hey, regardless, it'll be all right. Whatever happens, uh, you know, uh, it, it has to be right. Now, did you guys play um, and tour at all last year? Like, I know in 2020, you probably didn't, at least the end of or most of it. But what about 2021? Did you get many shows in during some moments or no? Uh, let's see. We did about 11, 10, 10 or 11 shows. I keep changing it because I, I thought it was nine, but I recounted for 2020. I think we did 11, but I missed one because I had COVID oh. <laughs> at the end of the year. Uh, last year we did about 45 shows and got, and, 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 uh, tracked a new album, got that new album done, you know? Well, and, uh, that's right. So yeah, we got, yeah, we did pretty good last year and 
this year we've done about five shows so far. We've started back into the groove, you know. We're going we're going at it, man. It's, so, uh, so I think it's okay. So with uh, that's a fact Jack, um, it was recorded in 20, it came out in late 2021. Was this, would you, was this like a pandemic record? Meaning you were kind of like, well, we got to do something. So let's write a record or were you going to do this anyway? And did you do it together? Like, were you able to record it together or was it done like all via at your own studios and files sent in those type of things? Um, we were, you know, going back to, um, 2019, I'll just back up a little bit. And 2019, you know, it was a normal year for everybody. You know, we, we toured our normal dates, I don't know, 70, 75 dates. We even went to UK, did a tour with Jason and the Scorchers and Dan Baird's homemade sin. Came back and finished up the year and then uh, took off for the holidays like we always do. And then going into 2020, we thought, well, you know, it's going to be another good year. There was a lot of dates on the books. We played... I think we played about five shows for before the pandemic hit and uh we were playing the birchmere in uh alexandria virginia mid-february and we had like three weeks off so we went home and we thought you know we're gonna have a little break here before the touring really kicks in and you know what happened dates start falling out dates start getting pushed up um things start locking down and from February to June, we didn't do anything. We finally did a drive-in show in Beaver Dam, Kentucky on in June of 2020. And then we ended up doing maybe like, um, I don't know, maybe five more shows after that. So we weren't getting together at all except if we played. We, you know, if we played a gig, we'd be on the bus and we'd go do them. But I, I, I might see Richard every now and then at the post office. So at the end of the year, the last date was in November. And I ended up being diagnosed with COVID and uh, <laughs> I had to get Chris Robertson from Blackstone Cherry to, to go fill in for me. And, uh, and then by the time I got through my quarantine, you know, the, the holidays were happening. But we were going to try to get together at the end of the year, you know, October, November, and try to do a little pre-production just to see what songs we have because we knew we were going to have to do an album. To answer your question, yes, we were aiming to do an album. And uh, it just didn't happen the way we intended. So after I had COVID and we got into the holidays and say it got too cold to go to the practice house, we just decided to reconvene and meet up at the studio in January here in Glasgow at Barrick Recording. And um, that ended up being February before we got in because of weather and different circumstances. But we did get together. And do the album together, everybody in the studio. And uh, there was only a few ideas flown back and forth. Maybe like if Doug had a song. Actually, Doug had several songs. And he sent, uh, you know, some rough ideas. And, you know, we would send rough ideas on MP3 back and forth. But we're not that kind of band, really. We need to get in a room and, 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 and work it out on the floor. And we don't read charts. We're just we're just a an old school band. You know, we, we do head arrangements. So we got the studio in February and we started working on it. Uh, first day was pretty much a a waste. It was it was futile. We didn't get anything done. Our brains were mush. Our our playing chops were down just a little bit. Uh, you know, calluses were a little soft. And uh, but second day we started tracking, and by by March 
the album was done, the tracking and the uh, overdubs. And then we went into the uh, mixing phase and then the mastering. And then it was all mastered and done by, I think, of April last year. And we, we got it placed with a label. And it finally hit the market back in October. <laughs> Now, do you so, re, do you but, record yes, we, do you record live off the floor as well, um, or how do you do? I understand you're all together, but a lot of bands, you know, like live off the floor and take all of those cuts, or sometimes they play live, keep the drum cut, keep the bass, whatever. How do you guys do that? What's your process? It's really it's really about getting a great drum track, and I have to say, Fred Young was on it from day one. He would literally come in the studio. He'd been working on the. He'd be working on the farm. He'd come in with muddy boots on, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were going for drum tracks. But most generally, what we like to do, uh, we like to keep everything that happens live that we can. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes a person feels like they can do a better rhythm guitar part, a better uh, solo, or sometimes I don't track the solo going down. But our intentions is to keep as much live. Uh, music that that went down in the moment there for the energy and for the spontaneity, but uh, you know I I did I kept some live solos I went back and overdubbed a few you know here and there right. but it it was it was it was it was kind of a, a mixture of both really you know some of it was live some of it had had some overdubs done. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Fred Young, so I'm just going to go in this direction just for a moment because. Uh, being a drummer, a longtime drummer, I decided that not only was this going to be the Industry 45 podcast show for Country89.com, GiantFM.com, but I was also going to, in 2022, uh-huh. add From the Drum Throne, because being a drummer, I always like to ask, I, I talk to a lot of drummers, to be honest with you, more, more than anybody, but... I, tell me a little bit about Fred Young is an icon. I remember, I remember in the, you know, uh, being in college and in high school in the early days of Kentucky Headhunters and, um, you know, watching some of the, the videos here on Much Music and just his look and his double bass drum kit. And talk to me a little bit about him as a drummer and what he's meant to your band. Oh, he's fabulous. Uh, Fred's always been a great drummer. Uh, I've met Fred and Richard and their cousin Anthony in 1968. And uh, how I met Richard was through a 4-H talent show that we did together first. And after it was done, we, you know, we hit it off and, and there was a spark, a musical spark there. And he said, hey, I've got a band with my brother Fred and my cousin Anthony. Would you like to come down and jam with us? And when I went down and jam with those guys, those three had a family groove. And this is 1968 and Fred, I don't know. He might have been 10 years old playing drums maybe at that point. And oh, Anthony, wow. You know, he might, he was just a little fella and Anthony Kenny on bass. I, I, what I remember about that first time I heard those guys were jamming on revolution by the Beatles and they just had this great groove and the family had a groove together. Richard's a really, really great rhythm guitarist. Fred's a great drummer and their cousin Anthony was a great bass player. They just had it. So, Man, I just fit right in with them. It was just like another piece of the puzzle. Not saying I'm great, but it sure made me better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and made me sound better anyway. But, uh, but no, we all grew together. But they had a natural thing. Uh, so yeah, Fred. When I first met Fred, he was playing single bass. Uh, he, you know, he was in the Ringo Star, and he was starting to uh, discover people like Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker. Of course, he loved Charlie Watts. And I've watched him grow over the years because we played together from 1968. Off and on, there was times we were apart. 
you know, I watched Fred grow over the years. We 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 we, we played from '68 onward. I mean, there were times when, you know, like when I graduated in 1972, I ended up moving to Louisville, and I was away, I was apart from the guys for about four or five years, and um, and that was a lot of growing time for Fred. But me and Richard Young found Fred a bass drum in 1971 or 72. We were at the Glasgow, Kentucky Armory, and it was a band playing over there. And we found, we were talking to some guy that had a bass drum for sale. His name was uh, Barry Delk. Barry Delk. And we went to his house and bought Fred another bass drum, and that's how Fred got into double bass around <laughs> 71 or 72. <laughs> Yeah, we bought this drum for twenty bucks or whatever, <laughs> and he already had a white, he had a white hall set, I believe, at that time, and he he put that, uh, put that drum with it, and he went to town learning how to play double bass, and and there again, when I was apart from him from seventy two to seventy seven, when I came back into the fold, he had already mastered, you know, he's grown immensely since then, you know, you know how we all whether we play guitar or drums. One of the things we do when we're younger, we overplay. Absolutely, you know, the uh, you know, and and we've learned not to play. And you know, Fred is one of these drummers that plays for the song. He knows how to add a drum part that becomes a hook of the song, though. Uh, and he won't put anything in that doesn't add. And uh, he's just a great drummer. I, he's a great person. I've known Fred. Hey. Fred's a farmer at heart. They play the <laughs> crap out of them, you know. Um, this won't surprise you at all, but and I, can hook, I can hook you up with him for your show, as far as that goes. Yeah, that would you be know? awesome. I'd love to talk to him. I just being a drummer and a fan, and I know that this is not going to surprise you, but um, I heard of the Kentucky Headhunters. Uh, with with Dumas Walker because it was such a catchy song and I remember being in in high school like I said and early in college and we would play the oh, song yeah. because it was just a party song and it just sounded like fun and good old you know drinking and having a good time and uh, so what did that song do for your band you had two charting hits right that one went to number fifteen on Billboard and Oh Lonesome Me which was that a cover I don't remember but it went to number eight on the charts as well. But talk to me um, about Dumas Walker, because I'm really curious to know uh, the genesis of that, if you can recall from uh, way back then in the, the late 1980s. I, I do. Uh, well, the first single was Walk Softly. And it, 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 I think it's, I'm not looking at the billboard charts, but it probably went to 20s or 30s. It wasn't embraced for radio, but the audience and the people embraced it. And it's what you call an impact record. Uh, it, it immediately caught people's attention, and they started buying the album right off the bat. And then when Dumas Walker came out, it was like a, a one-two punch, so to speak. Um, that that song, it was written really about two different places in this area. One is the Greasy Spoon in Greensburg, Kentucky, and another place was. Dumas Walker's package store in Moss, Tennessee. Um, we used to go buy firecrackers when we were kids for 4th of July because you couldn't buy them here in Kentucky. We'd go buy firecrackers, cherry bombs, M80s, bottle rockets. Uh, they were legal in Tennessee. And then a little later on, we'd go down and buy beer and whatever. But Dumas Walker had a little package store and he did shoot marbles. But the Greasy Spoon in Greensburg is where the Slawburgers fries and a bottle of ski were famous for. Okay. And we just, 
it, they, they, it's about two different places. I know it's a schizophrenic sounding <laughs> thing, but it worked. I don't know how it worked because they were real places. Dumas was a real person, and, and the Greasy Spoon was real. Even Garth Brooks asked me one time, he said, is that song, is that a real place? I said, yes, it is. It's about an but he was really inquisitive. He was checking us out, man. He was like, are these guys jacking everybody around? You know, or what? Yeah, but yeah. he figured out, pretty, you can't, you can't write unless you know about what you're writing about. I couldn't, I couldn't write surf songs. I could, I guess, you know, but it wouldn't be honest. You right. know, you gotta know, I can, I can, I can write a song about going outside and stepping into a pile of cow manure. I've experienced that. Yeah, I guess so. You know, <laughs> you, know, you know, we've learned over the years, there's no sense in writing about something unless you know about it. Absolutely. Uh, and so, Dumas Walker was real as it can be. Uh, the Greasy Spoon is still there. But believe it or not, they call it the Dumas Walker. They, they call it Dumas Walkers now. And uh, or the Kentucky Hat, the Kentucky Handler Cafe, or something like that. And we just said, "Yeah, whatever. That's that's okay. We don't get anything from them, but <laughs> they're still open." So that's, that's right. I do. Nineteen ninety one, unfortunately. But how did that song come about? It was just a shuffle. It was just a little double shuffle. And I can tell you, the genesis for that song was even back in the seventies. I was working an electronics store in Louisville and I was apart from Richard Fred. Fred called me one day in Louisville at the electronics store and we got talking about writing songs about the area. Uh, and we were talking about Dumas Walkers. I remember this little conversation and I think it was subliminally in the back of our mind. And, and I remember we, we came up with that line, small burger fries, a bottle of ski in rehearsal is actually when we started, it was Richard, Fred, Doug and I, and Ricky started, uh, he, he actually helped finish it off. And when we recorded it, well, even before we recorded it, we were playing it live in Bowling Green and different places. And we could tell people were reacting to it. And when we recorded the album, the president, Harold Shedd, was a little leery about having it on the album. Because he said, I don't know about this one song. And we talked him into letting us stay and in our, uh, our our gut feeling was right because it as soon as that song was released as a video and as a single uh, it really it took off it took off it really kicked the album into high gear and um, it just uh, and what does it mean to us I've always called my house the Dumas Walker Estate, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what paid for it, right? You know, what, you know what's funny is that um, there's so many artists that have said over the years that um, they had a particular song that the label or the, you know, whatever, whoever was making that decision at the label decided, I don't think this is a good idea for the album. Uh, bon Jovi's got some of those, I know for sure. And yeah. they said, no, it's going on the album. And those songs immediately became the hits. Isn't that funny how the band knew more than those that were at the record label or the presidents or whatever the hell they were? I'm surprised when I look to see that the Kentucky Headhunters had released eight studio albums. And I thought, holy shit. And and you tell me about the experience of, of playing uh, at the Grand Old Opry because you did that late 2021, I think, right? 
Yeah, yeah, we did December, I think December 6th of last year. Um, well, evidently, it came up, evidently Bill Monroe wanted us to do it back in the early days, you know, 1990, 91. And, and, and the story I've always heard is Roy Acuff said, ah, they're pretty good boys, but they probably need to clean up a little bit and cut their hair. I've always heard that. And so for years we were never asked to do it, you know, that we maybe that initial time, but I know back, I don't know, 2013, 2014, it came up again. Uh, they wanted to know if we wanted to do it. And we said, well, can we bring an amplifier or two amplifiers? Can we bring some of our gear? And they weren't accommodating at that time. They said, well, we only let a few of the solo artists do that. And we, we just declined it. Uh, in a nice way, very politely, and said, no, thank you, we'll, we'll pass. And even our booking agency was all before, you know, he was for it as well. So that was it. I thought after that, I thought, well, we'll never be asked to do it again. That, that's it, you know. I had done it, to be honest with you, I had done it back in the 80s with a country artist uh, two or three times. And it's the one gig I knew that would make you nervous because – Back then, you would have to walk out and plug into their PV amplifier, and, and the knobs were epoxied where you couldn't change anything. <laughs> wow. There was a PV amp out there, and if you plugged into it, you couldn't move the volume, you couldn't move anything, and you had to go with it. And I, I kept thinking, well, if it's going to be like that, there's no way we're going to go down there and play that. But they came back last summer to our PR guy. John Murray and um, asked us again and we asked them a couple of questions about the amps and they were accommodating and they were very polite and very nice and it just seemed like their whole temperament had changed since you know a, a few years back and we said okay well we're not let's do it <laughs> let's go for it and I must say it was still nerve-wracking a little bit for me I can't speak for the rest of the guys but I think they were but then you had to be a little nervous, maybe. But it wasn't as bad as it was back in the 80s. But it was great. It was one of the best things we've ever done. We got a standing ovation at the end. We ended up doing three songs. Uh, it was great. I, I cannot say enough nice things about the Opry. This is the Industry 45 Podcast Show with Shane Christopher Neal. Let me ask you about this as well. You are a seasoned radio host, 20 years, uh, lowdown, hoedown. So tell me a little bit about this. Like I'm looking at the guests on your show and you being a guitar player and you've got guys like Billy Gibbons, Peter Frampton, yeah. Vince Gill. And I'm thinking, I need to connect with this guy over here because he knows all the people. <laughs> and Paul Rogers, of course, of uh, Bad Company. And, and I guess we can throw in there a queen. But uh, so tell me a little bit about the radio show. I went, I went onto your website there, checked out a few things. Um, where did this come from? What do you love doing about it? And how do you get their, all your guests? <laughs> well, some of these guests, you know, like Paul Rogers, I, I, I knew a fella that had produced an album for him, uh, the Royal Sessions, which was done in Memphis at uh, Willie Mitchell's studio. And and he set that up. As a matter of fact, I haven't had him on the show a couple of times, but now I can't find this guy anymore. <laughs> he disappeared in the woodwork, you know. Uh, uh, 
you know, I still don't know how I got Peter France, and somebody contacted me out of the blue. And immediately I said, yeah, yeah sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and because and uh, I've met Peter since, and, you know, and, and hey, you know, we don't know each other real well, but he's very friendly and all that. But uh, I've never tried to get him back on or anything like that. Gibbons, I know. Billy Gibbons, I know. Most of these people I've known through the years, like like Vince Gill, Marty right. Stewart, uh, yeah. uh, you, you know, Sam Bush, uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, the country guys. We've come up together, you know, in the business. Right. Um, I had Glenn Hughes. And I was trying to figure out how I got Glenn Hughes. I think that was from a odd message Glenn Hughes had sent me about, because we were always talking about his old man trapeze and interviews. And he just emailed me one day and said, uh, thanks for always remembering us. And I said, well, thank you. And well, now I got your attention. Uh, you want to do my radio show? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's you funny. Know? They, 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 these guests come in all different, uh, different ways. I like, I just, uh, I've got Ronnie Earl coming on in May. Ronnie Earl's a great blues guitarist from Boston. And I've got uh, Kirk Fletcher, another really good blues guitarist coming on. Uh, we haven't settled a date, but, I've, you know, um, there's people I'd love to have. You know, uh, how do you go about getting an Eric Clapton or right. how do you go about getting a Jeff Beck or how do you get a Jimmy Page? Jimmy Page may not be as hard as you think. Who knows? The Industry 45 Show.